This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Welcome back to another Shade of Blue story here on The Felon File. I'm your host, Scott Lunsford, and we try to bring you stories, what we refer to, of course, as Shade of Blue stories, involving law enforcement, the law, court systems, some history, and crime and punishment, the good guys, the bad guys, etc. That happens in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there. Our Shade of Blue story today, and oh, by the way, thank you, Victoria, for starting us out. Our Shade of Blue story today is about a hero, or a villain, really, depending on how you look at it. Depends on your perspective of the story, and and on what end of the rifle you have to be standing on. There can be a fine line between war crimes and being a patriot, no doubt. The arguments in this particular Shade of Blue story were publicly displayed in the 1900s by several local newspapers, arguing their perspective on the pages of their published document. One paper called the man an outlaw. Another paper called him a patriotic hero. Even today, in 2023, you might get a different answer depending on who you ask and what the person you're asking believes or has heard from family or friends, or has read. Our Shade of Blue story, we're going to start out with an unlikely wedding in April of 1861 at the Presbyterian Church in Coffee's Gap near Grandfather Mountain, North Carolina. On that day, William McKenson Blaylock, nicknamed Keith, the nickname comes from a local bare knuckle boxer, Mr. Alfred Keith, the nickname was given to Mr. Blaylock, who was considered also a very natural fighter. And that particular day, Keith Blaylock married Melinda Pritchard. They had been some bad blood and issues between the Blaylocks and the Pritchard families over property boundaries and politics for more than 150 years. The argument started in Scotland then moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Appalachia. From the highlands of Scotland to the Carolina Mountains, history has demonstrated to these two families that justice is very complex. It is not simply to be entrusted to the corpse, where a jury may be packed with relatives of the enemy. Instead, justice was sought according to the Old Testament, basically an eye for an eye. When Keith was young, His biological father went hunting and never returned. He just disappeared. Several months later, his body was discovered in the woods in the middle of a dense laurel thicket. At the time, it was unclear if his death was due to man or beast. After her husband's death, Keith Blaylock's mother married a Mr. Austin Coffey, a well-known, well-off local farmer. 
At the time of the marriage of Keith and Melinda, Keith was 23 years old. He was six feet tall, lean and muscular, had a very long face, was clean shaven, his eyes bright and his hair dark. This is from written descriptions and a few actual photographs of the man that still exist. Melinda was four years younger. She was described as round-faced and pretty, almost a foot shorter with a slight build and very blue clear eyes. Melinda Pritchard had grown up just five miles from the Blaylock home and farm there in the shadow of Grandfather Mountain. The two attended the same one-room schoolhouse together and roamed the neighboring woods together as they grew up. Family stories say that when Keith was about 17 years old, he carved their initials together in the trunk of one of the tall, ancient pines that marked the property lines between the two families. Pretty good way to announce his commitment to his lady, if you ask me. Later, after the exchange of vows, the wedding party began. A fiddler began a reel, and the dancing started up. Soon a bagpiper joined in and the dancing rolls on in earnest. There is the old Scottish saying, don't give a sword to a man who can't dance. If you followed this, it demonstrated that every man there was also a worthy fighter and warrior that attended the wedding. Now, before I start getting emails telling me I'm wrong about the quote, this is not really an old Scottish saying. It comes from Confucius and his writings. The idea, of course, is that people must only be given swords once they've learned how to enjoy life and its movement. Not giving swords before they're discovered the inner strength required to publicly and at times foolishly dance with judgmental looks upon them. Don't give a sword to one who is not human and has no emotions and ideals. Let's keep that in mind too with the advancement of artificial intelligence that's going on. Well, Let's just say I've discussed this with several individuals with Scottish DNA who claim the quote to be as Scottish in descent as they are. And every one of them I know can dance and might have a sword handy, so I really don't argue with them about it. Going back to our festivities at the wedding, the bagpipes and fiddle being played, sometimes playing the same melodies and old tunes that summon the clans to the war in the Scottish Highlands. But we're in America, 1861. The nation was ripe for an inner turmoil as it broke into two different camps. The Pritchard family, Melinda's family, were secessionists, ready to leave the Union and side with the Confederacy. But on the other hand, the Blaylocks, most of them were Unionists, and so was Keith's stepfather, Austin Coffey. The wedding guests include many coffee step uncles cousins and boyd families which was another family that married into the, the blaylock coffee clan john boyd a fevered secessionist was among those that were present at the time also present at the wedding it was a very powerfully built strong mountain attorney and lawyer and u.s congressman mr zebulon vance at the reception there's a lot of talk about the attack the situation at Fort Sumter off the coast of Charleston. Not to mention President Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers to suppress the Southern Rebellion. Finally, Vance corners Keith. 
and asked him, in the war, will he join the fight for his home state? We know that he asked, but we don't know what Keith's response was. Vance would later say that while giving a speech on the rebellion, he raised his hand to make a point of, and of doing so as a starch unionist. Still, the state election for separation from the union came, and as Vance lowered his hand during this same speech, he did so as a secessionist, following what his state had voted to do. That was the start of our great adventure, Melinda would later say many years from now, of her marriage to Keith. For better or worse, they would take on an entirely different meaning for the couple. 4,000 volunteers from the mountain counties joined in the first call, and tens of thousands more would sign up later before the war ended. Some by volunteering, some of them were impressed into the Army of the Confederacy. Recruiters would travel the rural countryside, bringing pressure on any able-bodied young man to enlist. And the Coffey family connected to Keith. 18 Coffey cousins joined the 26th Regiment North Carolina Troops Company F, the Hyberton Guards, a Caldwell County Confederate States Army unit. Now, Keith Blaylock himself and his stepfather, Austin Coffey, took a very unionist point of view, which was not uncommon in the mountains among families who could trace lineage back to the Revolutionary War. Now, Keith's step-uncles accused him of being a coward. Not wanting to fight for the Confederacy, Keith ended up developing a plan. To avoid being conscripted, he enlisted in the Hyberton Guards. His plan when his unit is shipped to Virginia, he seeks to quietly steal across the state line to the Indian side and be done with it all. Two months after his marriage, Keith Blaylock goes to Blowing Rock, North Carolina, and enlists in Company F, 26th North Carolina Confederate Infantry. Now signed up, the 23-year-old and 21 of his peers walk to the train depot in Newton to be transported to Camp Carolina for training. Carrying new uniforms, rifles, and other equipment for war, Keith's fighting reputation and leadership ability goes before him, and he is elected sergeant of the group. One of those peers, a slightly built soldier standing only five feet four inches tall in a baggy uniform and a big forge cap, catches up with the marching 21 future soldiers and confronts Keith. The small wannabe soldier tells Sergeant Blaylock on the road, I'm going to fight with you. The slightly built newcomer is Melinda. She had her hair cropped back and she's masquerading as Sam Blaylock, Keith's little brother. Now, there are many stories of women enlisting in the military disguised as men or boys during the Civil War. Historians estimate that as many as 1,000 women may have done so, disguising themselves as men and served in the Confederate Union armies. Melinda Blaylock is one of only two women documented and known for having served in any North Carolina Confederate regiment. Though I have heard stories of several others at this time, it really just can't be proven yet. Among the best known and well-documented cases of such situations are those of Sarah Wakeman, aka Private 
Leon Wakeman, and Loretta Veracruz, a.k.a. Lieutenant Henry T. Buford. Yes, she made lieutenant. Military records reveal that women fought and died in all the major battles of the Civil War, participating in clashes in Antietam, Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, Shiloh, Vicksburg, among many other places. Dressed as men, women took on various military roles during the Civil War. For example, Sarah Edmonds participated in the Peninsula Campaign as a soldier, a spy, and a courier, and even for a time worked as a male nurse at the hospital at the front lines. Now, there were many underage soldiers in both armies that helped with the deception. A young woman in uniform was quickly passed off as a beardless boy without much of a problem. Most were only discovered when illness or injuries brought them under closer inspection of doctors and nurses. One documented case of a late discovery involved a New Jersey woman whose military bearing and gallant conduct in battle impressed her senior officer so much that she was promoted from corporal to sergeant. And it wasn't soon after that that she shortly gave birth to a child. After training, Keith's regiment is not sent to the front lines as Blaylock and everyone thought it would be. Instead, they're sent to Newburn, where they push back two assaults by General Ambrose Burnside's men. The opportunity to defect to the Union side doesn't happen, just doesn't allow it to happen. The dividing line between the sides way too far from where Blaylock and his wife fought their battles for them to sneak across. One night on a patrol crossing over the Neuse River, where they were ambushed in the boat during the crossing, Belinda is shot in the left shoulder. Keith carries her back to camp, and of course it didn't take long for the regimental surgeon to figure out her secret. Colonel Vance was notified. I remember Colonel Vance had attended the wedding of the two, and once he was advised of the situation, he quickly writes a discharge and removing her from the Confederate Army. Melinda ends up returning the $50 enlistment bonus, called a bounty back then, for signing up. No issues or charges were brought against Keith for hiding the fact that the soldier was his wife and not his little brother. But, not wanting to stay in the army without her, in the darkness one evening, he slips out of camp, finds a patch of poison ivy that he had seen in the daytime, and removes his clothes and rolls around in it. Soon, the sergeant is feverish and covered with livid red welts. The camp doctor, convinced that he has smallpox, arranges a medical discharge for Keith, who even keeps his $50 bounty, I guess for time served. The newly separated from the military couple, they make their way back to their home in their cabin near Grandfather Mountain. Keith soaks in tubs of salt brine until the wells disappear and his fever leaves. With official discharge papers in hand, Keith feels that he and his wife are safe. Some of his relatives have other ideas, though. Once his rash is gone, and he is reported by his step-uncle to the home guard, and Keith and Melinda's real war starts. 
A game of cat and mouse begins with the home guard patrols. The two begin spying on the conscription agents from high on Grandfather Mountain and forwarding the information wherever it's needed or wanted. To make things easier for his wife, Keith just disappears into the woods. At the same time, Melinda will politely welcome the home guard looking for her husband at the Blaylock cabin anytime they wish to search for her husband. The couple develop some important signals and signs. Calls, a specific quilt hung out on a clothesline, a candle burning in a specific window, each activity having a different meaning can be interpreted from a distance without placing Keith at a lot of risk to getting too close. Keith is able to elude capture and roams the countryside. He occasionally visits his stepfather, Austin Coffee's house, sneaking in through a secret tunnel that opens in a thicket about 100 yards from the back door. Keith grows a really cool mustache and goatee at this time, and living up to his outlaw image, I guess. In the summer of 1862, the Home Guard is given a new commander, Major Henry Bingham. He is determined to round up every deserter, outlier, and, and shirker in the area. Starting, of course, with Cle Starting, of course, with Keith Blaylock. Bingham's tactic is simple. When the guard encounters an able-bodied man, they command him to surrender. And if the man runs, they simply shoot him in the back. Major Bingham's troops surround the Blaylock cabin in August. They do so before Keith can hit the root woods. This turns into a standoff, and when night comes, he and Melinda sneak past a few sleeping troopers and head for the high country in the mountains. Keith Blaylock is actually captured twice more, but he manages to make a getaway each time. It turns out that Keith's hiding place in the high country was also populated with more than 1,200 Confederate deserters who were also hiding in the Blue Ridge. The natural leader that Keith was, he became the leader of a pretty much a ragged outlaw band spread out living in caves on Grandfather Mountain. Taking turns at lookout duties and foraging for food, Bingham obviously knows they're on the mountain, and he takes 50-some of his men up to the mountain to, to bring them back, or so he thinks. The mountaineers hold the home guard back, allowing Keith and Melinda to escape over the mountain and into the Watauga River. They make it to Banner Elk, North Carolina, where a relative takes them over the mountain again by old trails into Tennessee. Keith joined the Union Army at that point. He's given the rank of scout captain and recruiting officer, serving under Colonel George W. Kirk, a Tennessee-born Confederate deserter himself, whose mission was to drive out Confederate units operating on both sides of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Kirk recruits Keith to be what is referred to as a mountain pilot, helping Union escapees and deserters make their way north. One of the advantages of this relationship is that now Keith and Melinda are giving new Spencer repeating carbines and cold revolvers. Blaylock returns to North Carolina with 25 well-armed riders, mainly working to gather intelligence and scouting invasion routes. But when word reaches the Blaylocks that Bingham has shot down one of their neighbors for failing to halt on command, 
the troop breaks up into squads seeking retribution. In their first ambush, the squad kills three of the home guard. Later on, Keith goes hunting for one in particular, a Mr. Robert Green. Keith shoots him off his horse, but after confronting him, leaves him alive. The war turns into a desperate local feud. Keith and his so-called Yankee scouts ambush a company of home guards who retaliate by killing a Unionist man or burning his farm. No one is safe. If the Blaylock Band doesn't come after you, the home guard will. Now through it all, as the death toll mounts, farms go up in flames, barns burn, and bodies are found lynched and hanging from trees or decomposing in laurel thickets. Bodies from both sides of the fight. The Shelton Laurel Massacre that we've talked about is one of the incidents we've discussed in other podcasts. The Coffee family honored an uneasy truce with Keith. If Keith's mother and stepfather, Austin Coffee, and their property are left alone, so will certain people and property of uh, the Coffee brothers, William, Reuben, and Caleb Coffee. So, who was it that he attacked who had sided with the Confederacy? Keith and his men target prominent officers in the Home Guard. Then his group of a dozen Union scouts attack the home of one Carol Moore. Unfortunately for Keith, all the Moores, brothers, cousins, and nephews had already assembled with the intent of locating Keith and going after him. Keith and his men walked into an armed camp, armed to the teeth and ready to fight. They had put together a plan to hunt down Keith and his group, and they were almost overjoyed to have the fight brought to them instead of having it the other way around. In a dawn raid by Keith and his men, Carol Moore has his legs shot out from under him and becomes permanently crippled. Still traveling with her husband, but not hiding her, her gender at this point, Linda is also wounded in the forearm and shoulder. Linda is taken out to Knoxville, where she reaches the surgeon. And at that point, Melinda learns that she's pregnant and she will end up sitting out the rest of the war in Tennessee until the birth of her first son, the first of four sons, Columbus Blaylock. Meanwhile, near the end of October of 1863, Colonel Kirk leads 800 men along mountain trails escorted by Keith and others to Warm Springs, now called Hot Springs, for the headwaters near the Madison County seat in Marshall. Their orders were to make a scene enough to force General Robert E. Lee to send more men and equipment to the west, to western North Carolina. A battalion of 150 Home Guard, commanded by Major John Woodfin, rides into Warm Springs or Hot Springs. Convinced they will only face a small band of raiders, not knowing they're going to be outnumbered five to one. And the fact that those five were also outfitted with Spencer repeating rifles. Woodfin is shot out of his saddle dead. Kirk retreats across the Blue Ridge as Governor Vance, fearing the invasion, orders the 64th North Carolina home from Tennessee to fend the mountain border and dispatches battalions of cavalry west to Hot Springs. It was at this time that Keith ended up being shot through the left hand. The fighting profession, war, and personal family killings all continue in Bloody Madison, Watauga County, and other mountain counties. 
Melinda Blaylock's younger cousin, Thomas Pritchard, who was working as a Union scout, is killed. Thomas was captured by Confederate guerrilla troops led by a R.C. Bozen. He ended up being transported to Elizabethtown, then later marched to the woods beyond the town where he was shot and clubbed to death. According to a witness who watched it happen, the troopers, they left him and rode up the road, laughing and talking as if the bloody tragedy in which they had just participated in had afforded them most pleasant and agreeable diversion. Restraint soon vanishes on both sides, apparently. More crimes, as we would call them today, are committed by both Union and Confederate men. Later after the war, when interviewed, Keith Blaylock explains their cold logic in the matter. We all tried to do to them before they did to us. When General George Stoneman finally leads 6,000 cavalry troops into the state from the west through Tennessee and Hot Springs to free the prisoners in Salisbury, North Carolina, Keith rides with him. And in January of 1864, the Coffee Blaylock Truce comes to a terrible bloody end. Keith and his men capture William Coffey, Keith's step-uncle, and hold him captive at a stall mill. At least one of Keith's men, George Perkins, puts a pistol to the 60-year-old man's skull and pulls the trigger. Both sides will long argue over Keith Blaylock's role in the killing. Still, it's said by many that Keith gave the fatal order to pull the trigger. In January of 1865, Keith loses his right eye in a firefight, blinding him and smashing the socket in cheek, but he survives his injuries. The following month, the home guard supported by regular troops surround Keith's mother and stepfather, Austin Coffey's house. Information was that an escaped Union soldier was hiding out there. A Thomas Wright, who was a Union soldier, was actually found hiding in the root cellar. He was arrested, but Keith's stepfather wasn't located. Information again was produced that the stepfather was hiding at his dead brother's house, which had been vacant since he had been killed. Stepdad Austin Coffee is located and taken away and tied to a horse. At the same time, Keith's mother watches from the safety of the adjoining forest. The troops head to Blowing Rock stopping at the home of a Mr. Tom Henley, another guardsman, on the Blowing Rock Road. While the men cook a meal, white-haired, old man Austin Coffey dozes off by the fire. Suddenly, Captain Marlowe orders one of his men, a Mr. John Walker, to execute Austin Coffey. Walker, stunned by the order, refuses to. So, Marlowe orders a second soldier, a Robert Glass, to shoot Coffee. Glass falls to one knee, raises the barrel of his revolver to Coffee's temple, and kills Blaylock's stepfather. Marlowe orders the body to be taken outside and is taken to, a, to the a laurel and ivy thicket nearby and hidden in the snow. A dog was later seen with a human hand about a month later. Later, backtracked, 
to where the body was. After suffering from guilt and personal mental torture for killing a sleeping old man, Glass ended up dying sometime before 1882 in Rutherford County. When Keith learns that his beloved and revered stepfather who raised him was killed or murdered, as he would say, he also learns that John Boyd was involved. So Keith vows to kill John Boyd, saying if it took 40 years after the war, he would kill the man. The fighting continues. Keith and his men join an assault on Camp Mast, hoping to find Boyd and others who participated in various assaults and war crimes. They surrounded the camp and forced to surrender, but Boyd wasn't there. The fighting continues, but with General Joseph Johnston's surrender to General Sherman at the Bennett Farm in, in April of 1865, the war in North Carolina was finally over but not for Keith Blaylock and other like men. There are still several scores that need to be settled. Blind now in one eye with a severe head injury and just about beaten down from the events he had lived through, he receives a medical discharge from the Union Army. Now that the war is over, they need to thin their ranks. Like most men, he remembers. The vendetta against Boyer is still on his mind, so he waits. On February 8th of 1866, Boyd was traveling to Blowing Rock in the company of a William Blair. Keith Blaylock and Thomas Wright intercept the men in a narrow path through the woods. Blaylock hollers out, Is that you, Boyd? Yes, Boyd says from his horse, and he takes a swing at Keith using his walking stick. Taking the impact on his arm and shoulder, Keith steps back, raises his sharps rifle, and fires. Boyd falls from his horse. Keith at gunpoint orders Blair to confirm that Boyd is dead, which he is, and the vendetta is satisfied, and Keith goes on his way. Soon Keith is arrested a short time later and placed in jail, but before he could be brought to trial for murder, he was pardoned by North Carolina Republican Governor William Holden. Governor Holden, at the same time, was involved with the Kirk-Holden War in other parts of the state, an unofficial war with the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction. In later years, the Blaylocks farmed in Mitchell County and, for a short time, attempted uh, merchandising or running a store. They resided in the Linville area of North Carolina, which became part of Avery County when it was formed in 1911. In 1874, Keith ran for Mitchell County Republican candidate for the state legislature, but was defeated. He and Melinda moved to Texas for a while, but returned to North Carolina later. Melinda passed away in her sleep on March 19, 1903. When this happened, Keith temporarily went out of his head with grief, and his son Columbus ended up having to assume a legal guardianship of his affairs in North Carolina. Keith moved in with his son temporarily in Hickory, North Carolina. But within a short period of time, Keith was able to recover and ended up living another 10 years. On April 11, 1913, at the age of 75, still healthy and very much active, he was operating a railroad hand car 
along the railroad tracks outside of Hickory. He entered a sharp curve there on the rail line and the hand car was traveling too fast to take the curve. The hand car jumped the tracks and catapulted into the gorge, crushing Keith underneath it. Now there was some talk at the time that members of the Boyd family and Moore families were, were spotted in the vicinity just before his death. But it has never been proven that Keith's death was anything more than just an accident. Villain, spy, bushwhacker, murderer, soldier, or hero. Again, it depends on your perspective or on the side of the river you have to be standing on at the time. Keith Blaylock, who fought hard, bravely, with such spirit, courage, and brutality for the Union against the Confederacy, does receive one final betrayal. At his last resting place on his grave marker, his epitaph reads, Keith Blaylock, Soldier, 26 North Carolina Infantry, Confederate States of America. Describing Keith to anyone who might not know the real story as a Confederate soldier. Well, that's our Shade of Blue story for this week. I hope you found Keith Blaylock's story interesting. There's quite a few books on the Civil War in North Carolina and South Carolina that are out there. Pick one up and take a read. You might be surprised at some of the information that you might find, but choose one that's very well researched and documented. And Felon File will be back with another episode and another Shade of Blue story in another two weeks. In the meantime, check out some of our previous podcasts. There's plenty of them online that you can listen to. See the, Listen to those, see what you think. And if you'd like to comment on them or have an opposing viewpoint or whatever, drop us a line at felonfile at gmail.com. Or you can send us a direct link through through our website at felonfile.com. We'd love to hear from you. And you can also check out our stuff pages where we've got a few things that you might be interested in. Some Felon File coffee mugs and t-shirts that are out there. Nothing sets your coworker straight than drinking your morning coffee at work out of a Felon File coffee mug. I hear tell that even makes bad coffee taste good. In the meantime, y'all be safe, be secure. If you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. It's really the right thing to do, and if more people did it, the world probably wouldn't be as messed up as we have it now. We'll talk to y'all on our next episode of The Felon File. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee.
or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.